All right. I'd like to do obituaries in this program to talk about, uh, well, people's lives that deserve to be commented upon. One such life, although I'm embarrassed to say I don't know how to pronounce his name, would be Paul Fussell. I didn't know much about him while he was alive, but I was intrigued by his obituary as it appeared in The Economist. According to the Wikipedia site dedicated to him, he was described as an American cultural and literary historian, author, and university professor. His writings covered a variety of topics from scholarly works on 18th century English literature to commentary on America's class system. He's best known for his writings about World War I and II, which explore what he felt was the gap between the romantic myth and reality of war. Note of The Economist, war, especially the two great wars of the 20th century, had to be sanitized, justified, even glorified for public consumption. But Mr. Fussell made a public career out of refusing to disguise it or elevate it. War reduced human beings to serial numbers, quasi-mechanical interchangeable parts, and their opponents to vermin who could be slaughtered with crazy brutality and sadism. Apparently after fighting in Europe, Fussell was to be sent to Asia when the war ended. He said he thanked God thunderously and often that an A-bomb had been dropped on Japan. After World War II, he relished Samuel Johnson, Pope, and Swift, and spent two decades writing and lecturing about them. Noted The Economist, yet he was still at war. With a view now honed sharp by all that 18th century satire, he began to tease out the ironies of recent conflicts. The fact that for two archducal lives lost in Serbia, eight million young men died. Or the fact that the standard-issue New Testament he'd carried in his left pocket, purely to ward off bullets, also contained the Ten Commandments enjoining him not to kill. He admired hugely the poet officers of the First World War, Siegfried Sassoon, Wilfred Owen, and Robert Graves. True testifiers, he said, who could deftly quash the old patriotic lies. In The Great War and Modern Memory, 1975, he traced comprehensively the way that that particular war reversed the idea of progress, dragging its shadow through literature, music, and art, tarnishing forever such romantic notions as honor, chivalry, and valor, and ushering in skeptical modernism in its wake. Note of the magazine, he also found plenty of peacetime targets. In interviews, he was amicable, even sentimental. He laughed readily and, until, like a bear's, the gaze set and the broadcloth swiped at something he abominated. He mocked Americans for their class divisions and status symbols, the proles for their polyester, the middle classes for their perfect lawns. In Bad, or The Dumbing of America, 1991, Fussell sustained a book-long polemic against light drinks, processed cheese, stretched limos, turned-down service, butterfly corkscrews, and all things inflated with hyperbole and gilded with a fine coat of fraud. This great crappiness, he note, was essentially American. Bad would never end, he declared, as long as naive and impressionable people were ready to be flattered and deceived. And what about war? There, the prognosis was every bit as bad. He had hardly been the first to describe it as it was. There's no pussyfooting in the Iliad. But plain speaking made no difference. As long as there were 19-year-old boys, as he had been, and as long as those boys ached to prove their manhood by enlisting, there would be war. The same loss of innocence that enraged him for life would happen again and again and again. Another World War II vet whose passing I'd like to note would be uh, Ernie Magri. 
described in an obituary in the Sacramento Bee as a man who founded some local motorcycle clubs. He was a motorcycle buff who helped liberate Germany's largest POW camp. Mr. Margaret was described as a longtime figure in, Northern Cal- in the Northern California motorcycle community. He founded the Chico Motorcycle Club in 1932. He was purportedly a colorful storyteller with a sharp memory and knack for detail. But what struck me about the obituary and why I'm mentioning it is one paragraph, where it was noted that he fought under General George Patton as U.S. troops pushed into Germany in 1945 and rousted civilians in their homes in search of enemy soldiers and weapons. Said Magri, the army told us that we could confiscate anything from Germans that we needed for the war effort. This comes from an autobiography for his family. He added, it was my chance to pick up clean socks and underwear from their dressers, which beat doing laundry. And although I know war is barbarous and a breakdown of civilization, there's just something I find disturbing about American soldiers lifting socks out of German dressers. And I know that's, that's such a small thing, but I, I don't know, it, it somehow bothers me. But Mr. Magri, being the great storyteller that he, that he allegedly was, uh, according to the obituary, told his tales and news stories about veterans. And he recorded an interview for the StoryCorps project for the Library of Congress, in which he described his experiences in Germany, including touring the Dachau concentration camp and Adolf Hitler's mountaintop summer home, the Eagle's Nest. All right, got, let's go back where we started and talking about um, our, our judicial system and some of the craziness. I've got a pile of articles here that I think I'll just pop through, starting with the following. Headline, Sandusky Defense Turns to Psychiatric Diagnosis. Piece reprinted in the Sacramento Bee from The Morning Call from Allentown, PA, by Colby Iktowitz, says, Common in the middle of the last century, but rarely used anymore, Histrionic personality disorder was diagnosed for people, mostly women, who were overly dramatic, extremely sensitive, and often provocative. Think Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind. Now, Jerry Sandusky's defense team intends to apply it to the former Penn State football coach to explain his behavior, namely love letters he sent to his alleged sex abuse victims. Yes, apparently Judge McClelland in the case granted a request by Sandusky's defense attorneys to prevent testimony from a psychologist to rebut the state's evidence that Sandusky groomed his alleged victims. Noted the author, several psychology experts, none of whom has counseled Sandusky, say a married family man beloved in his community does not fit the profile of someone with histrionic personality disorder. U.S. Representative Tim Murphy, a practicing psychologist before representing a Western Pennsylvania district in Congress, said the dramatic, self-involved personality attributed to someone with histrionics does not, quote, turn on and off at a moment's notice, unquote. Such individuals are fake, shallow, and have difficulty maintaining lasting relationships. Said Murphy, I don't want anyone out there thinking that those with these characteristics are child abusers. It's neither an explanation or an excuse for serial child abuse. I think it's going to be a difficult stretch to use it as a defense. Sandusky's lawyers, meanwhile, filed a motion to allow a psychologist to testify who, quote, will explain that the words, tones, requests, and statements made in the letters are consistent with a person who suffers 
from a histrionic personality disorder, end quote. In other words, his actions weren't predatory, but rather an overly dramatic outpouring of love for the kids. None of the piece in 12 years of practicing law, exclusively representing victims of sexual abuse, Adam Horowitz, a South Florida attorney, said he never heard histrionics used as a defense. Personality disorders can be used as an explanation for behavior, he said, but they are not a legal defense like insanity. He speculated that Sandusky's defense lawyers are backed up against the wall and they're resorting to whatever they have. Added David Allen, professor emeritus of psychiatry at the University of Tennessee, the diagnosis is made infrequently now and may be removed entirely from the official manual that lists and defines all medical health disorders. He described that particular diagnosis as a, quote, cultural artifact, unquote. I gotta tell you, I hope Sandusky lands a really lengthy prison term for his predatory evil behavior. To which I would add that that opinion, like all those heard on this program, does not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. Here's an item from closer to home that warrants some examination. Apparently an Alameda County judge has been arrested of suspicion of stealing at least $1.6 million from his 97-year-old neighbor after taking over the management of her and her husband's finances, said Alameda County authorities. Paul Seaman, yes, Judge Paul Seaman was scheduled to be arraigned Friday on charges of elder theft, according to court and jail records. Seaman, age 57, is accused of fleecing Ann Nutting, his neighbor in Berkeley, following her husband's death in 1999, allegedly selling two properties the couple owned in Santa Cruz and taking over their power of attorney. By 2004, he had assumed control over almost all of Nutting's financial affairs, according to investigators. They say he sold off her art and other possessions, stored his 1957 Ford Thunderbird in her garage, and tried to bar her from returning to her own house. He also persuaded her to lend him $250,000 at 3% interest, but only made eight payments on the loan until he was contacted by police. In case you're curious, Seaman was appointed to the bench by former Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger in 2009. He was presiding over misdemeanor arraignments when he was arrested. Among his court decisions, he ordered four Occupy protesters to stay away from UC Berkeley last March. Here's one that's pretty irresistible article by Hector Becerra and Richard Winton in the LA Times. Noting that a U.S. bankruptcy court in Texas last week, this article's from uh, June 1st, granted a request from the LAPD to review eight cassette tapes containing hours of conversations between one of Charles Manson's most fervent followers, that would be Charles Tex Watson, and his late attorney. Evidently, the lawyer made the recordings while interviewing Tex Watson after he and other Manson family members had been arrested in 1969. Apparently, no one knows what's on the tapes, but they possibly represent the first new clues concerning the Manson murders in years. That was enough for the LAPD to take another look at the case and had Manson scholars excited about the possibilities. Detectives believe that Watson may have discussed additional unsolved murders committed by followers of Charles Manson, according to a letter sent to the U.S. Justice Department by LAPD Chief Charlie Beck. Now, why isn't this protected by attorney-client privilege? Well, I guess the guy's dead, number one. And according to the article, after he died in 2009 and his law firm filed for bankruptcy, Watson decided to sell the tapes to a co-author to the 
Watson, Watson decided to sell the tapes to a co-author of his 1978 book, Will You Die For Me? The Man Who Killed for Charles Manson Tells His Own Story. The LAPD has argued in court that uh, by doing this, Watson has waived his attorney-client privilege. Remember some years back, an attorney told me that, um, that as an officer of the court, an attorney cannot defend a man they know has gone out and committed murders. In fact, if the murderer tells you, yes, I killed Joe Blow on April 3rd, you are then duty-bound to inform the court that you cannot represent this person because he or she is, in fact, guilty of the crime with which they have been charged. Apparently, law schools are so uh, adept at convincing people that they're on some sort of high horse with this sort of nonsense that, you know, years later, they still spout it to people. After she informed me of this, I said, hmm, that's very interesting. Can you cite a single case that you know of where that's ever happened? That was followed by what would be called, I guess you'd say, a pregnant pause. We've only got a few minutes left in today's program, but doggone it, walking into the studio is is an opportunity. Previous Radio Parallax guest and uh, and buddy from UC Davis days, Elise Howell rejoins us. Welcome back, Elise. Hi, Doug. This is a, a stroke of luck that you walk in because it turns out you are part of Catherine Holbein's entourage and will be participating in the readings of Homer Friday night. Absolutely. I'll be there. <laughs> do you, do you, have you gotten your, uh, your, your lines down? No, not quite, but that's the beauty of it. You don't have to be so rehearsed. It's a it's just something that can take place fairly spontaneously for each reader. I'm assuming you were awarded a rather plum female type role. Would that be a, would that be a guess? Yes, I hope so. I think so. I think you'd be entertained by hearing it. Circe, perhaps, or something slutty like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, this won't be your first trip to the rodeo. You've been you accompanied Catherine, I guess, what to Montevideo? A couple yes, of years ago? in Uruguay. Yes, okay. and I got to do it twice, once in English in a passage and once in Spanish. So it was double the fun. Which, of course, is also a tribute to UC Davis because I believe you were a Spanish major, were you not? Yes, at least some of the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, in your opinion, does Homer sound better in English or Spanish? It sounds more romantic in Spanish, but it sounds See? great in English. Mm. Interesante. We don't have much time, Elise, but just give us a, a quick thumbnail sketch of what it's like to go up there and be one of those readers of Homer. First of all, the thing to remember is you have the kindest audience you could ever have because everybody in the audience will probably be a reader. So it's one of these things okay. where you totally feel for that person. You know that they might be the first time they've done any public speaking. They have a script and they're up there for two minutes and 99% of the readers are fantastic mm -hmm. because they have their script ahead of time. They look at it and then they go up. So. You actually have a person on deck, you have the person reading, and you have the person that's finished reading. So there's three people up there, two seated to the left of the right, and the person doing the reading. And the way they run it is they find the, the next people coming, so it just flows, flows, flows like um, a perfect text. Like musical chairs, the, the one person leaves and then you all shift over. Correct. Okay. It's very smooth, it's fun, and like I said, you get up there and people uh, that watch you were either you a little while ago or will be you, and they're nervous for you, and <laughs> that's what makes it magical, that you get to be a participant and you get to be the audience. There, I don't very, know very many venues that allow you those two roles. Yeah, I have to admit, that time that I tried to get down to the on-deck circle during a Giants game, they just, they just took a dim view of that. <laughs> <laughs> what about the 1%? The 1%, you know, you just feel for them, but the thing that's so 
I think so unique is all the readers are different, you know, ages, colors, sizes, and languages. The first one I went to, uh, someone spoke in Japanese, a translation right after someone did it in French, then did it in Old Greek, Spanish, English. You get to read in whatever language you want when you get the... Um, little blurb or the little passage you can go look it up in another language and you know people don't know you're not reading it correctly but it gives the whole thing color because homer is so universal and translated in so many languages and young kids six-year-olds read and 80-year-olds reads and it's fantastic remember it takes it can take up to 10 hours and the reading is continuous with a few breaks so if you get tired of listening to homer like you would get tired of watching a movie or anything else you can take a little nap and you'll wake up and somebody else will be reading and it'll be a different passage and it's welcomed it's it's a living um performance well after the event sometime in the weeks to come you'll have to pop back on the show and and give us a critique of how it went down elise Howell, thanks for the update and and tomorrow break a leg oh i will And on that note, I think we shall end today's program. Our thanks to Catherine Holvine, and hope that a lot of you will attend this reading of Homer. Yours truly will not be there, but um, I hope I will be next time they have one of them. This program was produced by Edward McMillan, as they all are. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. I'll see you next week at the same time. <laughs>